all these blank instances, they may be blank phrases, blank words, blank lines, they help to give um, body and life and um, all kinds of um, potential alternative meanings to the words I'm even saying out loud. Project of the Open Book at 201 Ponsonby Road in Auckland. I'm Anna Livesey, the curator at large uh, of the Open Book, and I have got Lisa Samuels with me. Uh, Lisa will be reading at the Open Book on this Sunday, the 19th of February. Um, but before that, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation and reading. Uh, Lisa is a transnational writer who teaches at Auckland University. She's the author of 16 books of prose and poetry. Um, and she's going to read to us. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Anna. Thank so you nice for having to, me. Oh, so nice to have you. Yeah, it's terrific. I'm really glad that the Open Book is doing that. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, we're, we're very excited. Yeah, it's really great. <laughs> so I'm going to read um, three poems from my book, Symphony for Human Transport, published last year by Shearsman Books. The door of the train flew open, and we walked grass and trees without knowing wings inside the brain who flutter out all you present for what I hear the recognition forcing to an edge I cannot hide dislodge make room for me no explanations understand of earth we surged out tripping over sky sounds mind trees flowers leaves dirt the world interpreting itself to each other across the tops of buildings flying with our feet trust delicate through we flew the green tops of the sky bespoke. The warm day held no countenance for itself, entirely given to burning. Every hour within the frame of air, the train were monstrance, held to the torso of the groaned idea. There they went, the bodies walking out of air, strode within an accident of shaken disposition, mouths akimbo, to the merest question words posed on the platform of idea where we stood, queer as milk, queer as rounded land shapes where the train curved fast to loose its prior forms from any door struck through with flesh, from any window holding light hit air, the eye bathes morning through, the moving sky exceeds the blank. The door to the train flew gently Absence turned to words, ungathering sublates call, beside a curled tongue, the birth of presence mirror tusk. Given to pre-existence, karma drags on the known, the pad-like wavy doors hitting open, close, on and off, very near the hands one might exuberate without closely conching too near buried earth, who knows. The door of the train flew open, a thousand doors left my mind to open into one by one they opened thereby no one else the trees burn cool invisible in pantomime doors retrofit a purpose we could climb into the records metaphor unsaid beside the train whose open door bedrawed exuberant hinge the animal of life's forgetting proffered luck obeisance flaunt the animal could laugh and call out words and wrapped with sounds cut honk the bird strings plucked inside the door whose train invents its passengers. Fabulous. Queer as milk. Mm. Wow, well, those are um, 
Fabulous to hear you read those poems. Uh, you sent me um, a couple of nights ago an essay that hasn't been published yet, which is called um, Soft Text in the Open Line, and I thought it would be lovely to talk about that, um, some of the ideas in that essay, as I read through it. And of course, it's always wonderful to read the pose, prose of poets um, because of the richness of the writing and the kind of freedom from... Um, you know, freedom from the need to be sort of linearly prosical, if, if you know what I mean, and just to sort of get into the poetic sometimes. Um, and there are a few quotes in that, or a few lines in that, that I thought were really amazing. So I'm just going to read those, mm -hmm. and okay. then I thought perhaps you might like to respond in some way okay. uh, that will be interesting for our listeners and explain some of the ideas that are in there. And so one of the things I found really striking was, a line is a sight mark, a deep cave surfing its opening on a held page, miniature hugeness echoing inside your cavernous eye space. So it was one of the lines that really struck with me, stuck with me. And then, um, the scrutable releases the infinity of the inscrutable, thus the interpretive penumbra, penumbra always glows with soft text. Uh, which I think is an amazing image, and especially when you talk about what you mean by soft text, the idea of that glow around the scrutable, what can be seen, I think is amazing. And then a blank line is also a line, which is such a bold and um, obvious and yet not obvious kind of statement to make, I think. It's very sort of um, satisfying, that mm. statement, I found it. So I turn over to you. What do you have okay. to say about these things, Lisa? <laughs> well, they're lifted from a, a longer piece that's going to be in Axon, which is an online Australia-based journal. Um, and uh, it's interesting what you're talking about, these scrutable as the um, anchoring or hard text in the context of the piece um, for the inscrutable of soft text. So soft text is uh, a, a theory of textuality that um, wants to give a local habitation and a name to all the lingual living that we do that is not instantiated in hard text. Hard text would be anything you say out loud, anything that you write down, anything that you also read. So it's not just a question of what you create, but your participation in hard text. Um, always when you're reading, writing, experiencing hard text, you have all this soft text going on, things that you think but never say, uh, things that you withhold from um, words that you do say to somebody, things that you think when you go along and narrate your life or even label the things that you're looking at or the experiences you have, and yet you don't say them. So soft text is a kind of um, permeant lingual environment that we live in and that is related to hard text. It needs hard text, right? Because hard text gives it those um, scrutable instances that it can um, be in relation to. Um, it's interesting you picked also the cave image because I think I've often thought of language on paper as deep. I, mm. so I think of ink on paper as a deep surface. I never think of there being something, as it were, behind the lines. I think that is being entirely available and yet in unavailable at the same time. So interpretively, you might cascade some things out in a scrutable hard text fashion from the potential that's available within that deep cave of the deep surface of the line. And the other piece I loved about that was the cavernous eye space, because it's not just what is behind the line, but what is behind your eyes yeah. that you are 
that is also um, both always there and not not always totally visible. You know, I yeah. thought of that as the brain and the capacity that you have in the brain to True. absorb what is you know taken in from the cave of the writing of the hard text. Yeah, I, I like that. I also think about the cave of the eyes in terms of what doesn't go back into the mind, the things that bounce out. You know, the right. the the thing that we many, that we know that you you receive an image upside down and your brain actually writes it. So that inversionability of the image spaces that you experience that are not necessarily interpreted in the mind. I think there's a great deal that happens even visually that is mm, not in accord with our normative ideas about what it means to perceive something visually. So it really does, you know, so actually what hits the back of the eye and doesn't go back is just as interesting to me as though the eye could speak out or breathe out. <sighs> you know, this stuff, it just comes right back out. Yes. Um, so that kind of interactivity, right, and not necessarily interpreted or semantically referenced interactivity mm. of being in terms of text and ink and, yeah, and perception. Mm. So. So then this is tied right in. I think it's interesting you pick out those three things because it's tied right into then that um, idea that a blank line is also a line. And I think that that can go in a lot of different directions. I mean, I'm in the, in the essay, I'm talking about it in the context of poetry so that even that pause right there is a kind of blank line within the middle of the sentence. And a lot of different things, you know, if I laugh or if, ha, I hesitate, I almost say something. All these blank instances, they may be blank phrases, blank words, blank lines, they help to give um, body and life and um, all kinds of um, potential alternative meanings to the words I'm even saying out loud. Yeah. Right? And to if the you words that you read in the poem. Too. Yeah, and if you return that again to the if I can say what, the text of the body or the text of the face, one of the most powerful looks you can get from someone is a blank look, mm. right? Someone mm. gives you a blank look, that means something mm -hmm. quite intense, something intense is going on in the relationship where there is blankness on one side. Right? Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that was oh, one wow. of the images in the essay as well. You yeah. know, soft text happens when you're speaking with someone on a phone and no one is saying anything, but you know the line is open. Yes. You know, so there's a lot of soft text in that. Yes, and that's quite magical. Um, you also, um, that was a beautiful explanation, thank you. And now if listeners wanted to find that essay, um, what would they need to enter into their Google search bar or similar? Um, probably Lisa Samuels Soft Text Axon Journal. Great. A-X-O-N. Will, it will be published in probably about two months. Great, okay. Yeah. Well, that would be amazing. So you can go and read it for yourself. So you yeah. also... Um, quote from the wonderful Wallace Stevens poem, uh, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. Uh, we both actually brought copies of this poem. You bought your lovely edition of the collected Wallace Stevens and I bought a beautiful selected um, poems that was my mother's. Uh, so I wondered if you wanted to, because a lot of your life is not just the creative um, writing poetry side, but also the critical side, I wondered if you wanted to do a little um, critical practice on the hoof. I don't even know what that looks like, but I'm sure you do. Right, on the hoof, we're back to the cow, aren't we? Yeah, that's right, yeah, on the cloven yeah, hoof. Yeah, right, the cloven hoof, or the, yeah, the hoof of the mind. Um, well, you had mentioned before that you uh, had found something out about an essay that I uh, published called Deformance and Interpretation. So, um, deformative criticism is something I invented in my um, PhD, which I did at the University of Virginia 20 years ago. And um, the, the interest of deformance is in physical criticism, that is to say, um, interfering with um, 
you know, lovingly, graciously, mm, despondently, or rebelliously, uh, the physical structure of artworks as a mode of critical engagement um, with their possibilities. And one of the... Um, Fiddling about with shit, we might say. Yeah, yeah, you could say that, <laughs> and that would work. And shit also becomes this, which is very Stevensian, actually. Mm. Um, Wallace Stevens was one of the subjects of my PhD dissertation. So yeah, I, fabulous. Yeah, yeah, so I really, I, I love his writing. I'm very interested in his writing. So uh, one of the things I, I thought about doing, um, one of the instigating ideas for deformance um, was a piece, a fragment from the American poet uh, Emily Dickinson from the 19th century um, when she wrote, have you ever read one of uh, somebody, she was talking about a particular poet, read one of his poems backwards. Um, I sometimes or often have a something overtakes the mind. So what I thought about doing as a um, sort of an initiating mode of deformance on 13 ways of looking at a blackbird is reading the poem backwards line by line. And one of the things, yeah, one of the things that happens and um, I do this with my own work, um, I encourage students to do it with their work, is that the um, mm, retrospective patternings and the mm, multi-dimensionality of a work uh, comes to the fore when you bring that out. Um, and I would, if I were doing this as a critical work on a computer, I would literally type this out. It would be necessary to literally type it out, but now yeah. I will literally read it out. That's wonderful. And I just wanted to say to you, you know, one of the things I struggled with when I was an English student myself many years ago was the leaping away from the work when you wanted to interpret it into something else. And one of the things that I love about this idea is the entering deeper into the work as a way of doing critical practice on it rather than kind of moving away to it into a construct um, that sort of takes off from it. So yeah. I think it's really another, quite powerful. Yeah, I th thank you. I mean, I think so. It's not, I'm not the only person thinking about these kinds of things, certainly. I have another essay called uh, critical, about critical withness, um, and it has to do mm. also with that, you know, closeness with the text, and that has to do with our histories of interpretation and exegetical analysis, you know, based in religion and scientism and... You know, and all kinds of things that we could talk about, but maybe in a longer conversation elsewhere. Um, but uh, but they're very important, and I think that um, they do bear on what it means to be educated in interpretation, um, not only at Western universities, but in the structure of educational systems. You often are working with deficit models and with models of correctness, um, and uh, they bring all kinds of problems with them. Um, and so deformance and physical criticism and witness are in relation to and in resistance uh, to deficit and correctness models of interpretive work. We are so woke on this podcast team. <laughs> <laughs> so here well, are some, here's 13 ways of looking at a blackbird um, upside down. In the cedar limbs, the blackbird sat and it was going to snow. It was snowing. It was evening all afternoon. The blackbird must be flying, the river is moving. For blackbirds, the shadow of his equipage, in that he mistook once a fear pierced him in a glass coach, he rode over Connecticut. Would cry out sharply even the bods of euphony flying in a green light at the sight of blackbirds. Of one of many circles, it marked the edge when the blackbird flew out of sight. In what I know that the blackbird is involved, but I know too, and lucid, inescapable rhythms, I know noble accents of the women about you, walks around the feet. Do you not see how the blackbird, why do you imagine golden birds, O thin men of Haddam? An indecipherable cause traced in the shadow, the mood crossed it to and fro. The shadow of the blackbird with barbaric glass icicles filled the long window. 
or just after the blackbird whistling, or the beauty of innuendos, the beauty of inflections, I do not know which to prefer, are one. A man and a woman and a blackbird are one. A man and a woman, it was a small part of the pantomime. The blackbird whirled in the autumn winds, in which there are three blackbirds, like a tree. I was of three minds, was the eye of the blackbird, the only moving thing among 20 snowy mountains. Wow. That is incredible. That feels incredible. Isn't it amazing how it works? It is incredible how it works. And I think um, I think, I think three things about that. The first thing, I, well, many more, but three I'm going to say. The first thing is, it sounds so amazing. Like, how beautiful. And you must have been so excited to kind of think of this. So let's talk about that in a moment. Secondly, um, thank God you weren't trying to write about Proust. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine. You oh, would that would exhausted take a while. trying yeah, to go backwards. Um, and thirdly, um, the part of me that was once a creative writing teacher says, oh my God, do this to your poems, poets. Absolutely. Because if it stands up backwards, then it is wonderful. Exactly. If and it stands up backwards, it will stand up forwards, right? Mm. What a lot of, um, it really uh, highlights the incredible integrity of the poem, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 um, the wholeness and integrity of the poem, and it doesn't matter in a sense what way you put it those words together well i would even say that it releases the normative syntactic force which is often just what i was about to say (laughs) (laughs) you know so that you actually have all of the elements are there and they are released into multiplicity yeah um it's yeah it's an extraordinary thing for a lot of poets to try yeah so then let us end this conversation then on me saying um can you just tell me the story of when this idea came to you? Because it must have been a, a moment, an amazing moment. Well, I can tell you the story when it came to me, actually, because it was my dissertation director, Jerome McGann, was working with visual images. Um, uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti is a 19th century visual artist, also a writer. And um, uh, he was working with um, highlighting and suppressing various elements of pictures. And I looked at that, and I thought about doing that with language. I thought, how can you highlight and suppress various aspects of a a piece of language? And so I would do something like take out everything except the nouns from a poem, or take out everything except the prepositions, or something like that, and just started turning it upside down and turning it all around. Yeah, and then I came to understand that it was a viable thing that I could really do. (laughs) Well, that's amazing. Wow. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Lisa. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and we maybe we'll do this again sometime. I feel like there's lots of other things we could talk about. I think we would have good well. conversations, Anna. Thanks yeah. very much for having me. Great.